The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hello, John. How are you doing? How How are you, John? I am to relax. How are you? Uh, It's late summer. Uh, the memoir is coming along very, very well. I speak of, of it almost never, but I'm I'm so excited. You know, we're getting, we're, yeah. Uh, I'm headed west uh, to Stanford and to Jackson Hole to conferences with my Hoover Institution affiliation. Mm-hmm. And I've just come back from a week on North Carolina's Outer Banks, where we rented one of these massive Italianate uh villas mm-hmm. uh ornate you know just over the top amazing and all of my kids and grandkids came together with a mm. couple of exceptions with some spouses and we just hung out you know <laughs> mm. had clam bakes and you know cabana on the beach and uh you know played uh uh cards against humanity until mm. the wee mornings. Do you know that game, Cards Against Humanity? No, I don't think so. It's a it's a silly game where you deal out a bunch of cards with phrases on them. And oh, they're cue cards which have propositions to which the phrase could be an answer. Mm-hmm. And all the people around the table who have phrase cards play out their answer to the proposition, to the cue. And one person is a judge, and he or she will decide which of those responses is quote unquote, the best, right? where there's no objective criteria of what constitutes the best. So it could be humorous, it could be raunchy, could be profound, could be ironic, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, and it's just a fun game and people of all ages can play. So we, but there was drama. I know you didn't ask me all of this, but there was drama at the family reunion where me, the patriarch in my 70s with my children and my grandchildren, different mothers, different stories, different phases of my life. And uh, different grievances, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, yeah. This could be this is novel novelesque. Uh, this or, kind or of the... uh, setting, and mm-hmm. I had Agatha Christie in mind. <laughs> <laughs> so you know who who was it that stabbed Papa? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it was a joyous occasion. I'm I'm sorry again. I know you didn't ask me all of that, but that's okay. No, it sounds like it could be August Wilson if it had anything to do with anybody saying that somebody was authentically black in some way. It would be the, the modern, it would be August Wilson in the 20s. <laughs> so, so I have a granddaughter. She's a wonderful young woman, Amira. She's admit, she has had her 25th birthday. She's a law student at the University of Maryland. And uh, she can't get past me having signed a brief on behalf of the Students for Fair Admissions. That's the Asian plaintiffs and the Harvard UNC uh, affirmative action mm-hmm. case. She just can't get past that. She took me to a side. We had a long heart to heart in which I tried to explain myself. I had my laptop open. 
I pulled up some data. I, you know, I, I tried to make the argument about why the structure of admissions was problematic. And, you know, blank. I'll bet it just it was like, I hate to say this, but I'll bet it was like talking to a wall on that. subject. Yeah, it was, but it was very loving. It was it was loving and sympathetic. No, I didn't persuade her, though. That's that's for sure. I did not persuade her mm-hmm. uh, because our, our value bases were different. I mean, she was worried about what she understands to be the interest of black students. And the argument that this is not even in the interest of black students is going nowhere with her. And but she doesn't I was, understand the. Can she at least see the logic in a feeling that there's a certain presumption of inferiority and a discouragement of top level performance? Can she see that? I don't think she credits the empirical proposition. She doesn't think the link between effort and the incentive structure that is altered by affirmative action is behaviorally significant. And she thinks that the negative judgments or the superstitious, I mean, uh, stereotypic, you know, uh, discounting of black uh, excellence would be there anyway, because racism. And she thinks that if there are differentials in grades and test scores, then either uh, the criteria don't matter and are arbitrary or the difference is because of racism and so well, I, I'm sure she thinks there's racism implicated in the difference, but I think she thinks that the test score stuff is overrated as an indicator of the quality of students. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, they could write papers, they could have ideas, they, they could be uh, contributors to the deliberation in the classroom, they could be thoughtful, they could ask questions. Uh, they don't necessarily have to have high test scores. So what's good? What, what do you mean right. by quality? Right. Right. Sophisticated, though, not not, you know, a stick figure, <laughs> Kindy-esque. <laughs> but I mean, you know, she's she's, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I have another granddaughter, uh, my my lovely, uh, my lovely Faith, uh, who's an undergraduate at the University of Illinois, Urbana. Uh, sorry, Amira, for calling you out, baby. I love you. Sorry, Faith, for calling you out. But I'm Poppy is just reporting on the exciting family vacation. So uh, we were talking about Clarence Thomas, and we were talking about the Supreme Court, and we were talking about the uh, uh, abortion stuff. And no, this wasn't in the same way where I'm on the other side, because, you know, I'm, I'm pro-choice within reason. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think, though, that, uh, you know, the narrative that uh, this is an assault on the fundamental personhood, she says anybody who is not uh, pro choice uh refuses to respect the dignity of my humanity as a woman and i want to say well no i mean people are placing a value on the life of the fetus and there's a question of judgment and all the countries have to work it out differently you know and there're going to be rules the question is whether rules going to be and what the court did was allow for the states to decide what the rules are it's not a statement about what the rules should be it's a statement about who should decide and you know, like that. And, you know, she was, she was very eloquently, passionately adamant. Uh, it reminds me of a question somebody asked us in the Q&A f- uh, part of this uh, podcast, uh, which is, um, if you, as you get older, how has your thinking changed? Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm the grandfather, and, and here, are, here are the young adults born 
not quite in the 21st century, but almost born in the 21st century. There's a half century or so difference in our, in our ages. And instead of trying to pronounce, maybe I should just listen and try to understand how people are seeing the world, uh, because that may be the future. Yeah. yeah. Were they listening to you? Or were they just being nice because there's a blood relationship and nobody wants to rock the boat on a family? So the thing is, because I'm such a public figure, I don't know how much of what they perceive as me is based upon anything that I might have been saying in the conversation and how much of it is the cumulative effect of all these different posts and writings and conversations and outputting that I've been doing, you know, over the last months. And uh, my, my reputation uh, precedes me, you know, I mean, I come into the room as it were with, uh, with baggage. Uh, but yeah, I, I, they were respectful, mm-hmm. which is more than I can say on occasion for some of my other older children. <laughs> <laughs> We're also taking anyway. Let, that's enough. Enough. This is Glenn Lowry. This is the Glenn Show, uh, presented by the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research, where I am John Paulson Fellow, Senior Fellow in New York City. And I'm with John McWhorter, who writes for the New York Times and who's a professor at uh, Columbia University with black guys. Uh talk every other week at the Glenn Show, and that's what we're doing this week. So you got any comparable personal revelations to share with us, John? Um, lately, no. Um, actually, I'm surprised at how much less of that of um, ugly pushback I get these days. And, you know, it's partly because I'm not looking for it. But um, no, I don't have any stories of confronting somebody who isn't capable of completely understanding where I'm coming from as being something other than some sort of um, mistake. No. Um, and I, I maybe it's partly that I've been kind of keeping my head down lately. But um, I am aware, though, and I'm going to not do any labels, but I know an actor, a white actor of about my age, who has been involved in a theater production where um, based on something that really doesn't make any sense of color in the production basically went on the verbal war path against the white people in the person and they are claiming that it's really hard being an actor because you're always surrounded by these white people with the person <laughs> the white people in question are just to the color and you know everything that they say and do and you know what sparked the confrontation was somewhere the white person was damned if they did, damned if they didn't, and the whole thing made no sense anyway. And the director basically supported the people of color, and there have been, you know, ostracizations and shunnings, and it just makes me realize that there really is a certain kind of person. They're beyond reason on this sort of thing. And I was telling the person who had experienced this and, you know, yeah. the show that he's in, I said, you know, the, the one mistake you made, once you started hearing that kind of dialogue, that kind of performance that has nothing to do with real life and everything to do with a kind of catharsis and a sense of group membership, 
I said, really, you should have realized there was no point in trying to pitch in. Literally no point in saying anything. And I think that frustrates a lot with me these days because the grand idea is how do you have productive conversations? And I firmly believe there are times, and it's not seldom, especially these days, when there's no conversation to be had. And I think some hear me as being very obstructionist and maybe even snobbish in saying that. But it really is true that in this case that I heard about, and I have to stress it had nothing to do with me, but I just was chilled at the thought because I've done a certain theater myself. Sure. I thought there's, there was no point in speaking. You would have to you work around people like this. And unfortunately, that means sometimes dealing with a person who is you know, practically insane in on that subject in your midst. And it's sad to deal with someone who can't be reasoned with despite the fact that they're creating harm for no reason at all. And all of this in the name of something called anti-racism. In the theater, there's something called, um, something like we see you white theater people or something like that. And there was a manifesto in, I'll give you a guess as to what year, 2020, where you read this manifesto of theater people of color making these utterly unreasonable claims and demands about white theater and having the idea that really there should be perfect representation of people of color in the theater. If anything, theater should be turned over to people of color as just desserts for what's going on in years past. Never mind what that means about an actual healthy or realistic theater culture in the very diverse United States. The idea is that you know Black and Latino people especially should be taking over that black people shouldn't have to play roles that they don't want to play, that, you know, black roles only be played by black people no matter what, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of it, <clears throat> some of it starts with a little bit of common sense and a little bit of decency, but the vast majority of it is shit. It's just melodramatic, performative bullshit. And yet from what I'm hearing, white people in the industry are to a large extent bowing down to this because they don't want to be called names and they don't want to sacrifice their careers. All of this chills me to my socks. And yet there's a certain kind of person who thinks that what I'm chilled by is anti-racism, that I don't like seeing racism battled. You don't We're want the justice time. to prevail. Yeah. But I wonder if this is not, I mean, I keep getting hints of this all over the place. Um, the theater program at a university that we all know uh, that I don't want to name because the guy shared this document with me kind of in confidence. But it was an internal document. It was a manifesto constructed by a committee within the theater department of I this these university. Yeah, yeah. And it went on for like 30 pages or something of kind of like outraged, you know, defiant demands for demands, demands. And, and I'm just wondering whether or not within, I don't know, orchestras, I don't know, museums, um, I don't know, uh, foundations. I don't know, certain media outlets, not the one you work for, of course. No, no. Um, I don't know, search committees at a university where they're trying to appoint somebody to a chair and they've got different members of the committee. I'm wondering whether or not this psychology of anti-racism, let me call it that, this uh, set of presumptions and postures and the rhetoric and a, a kind of orientation you're, all, you're constantly on the lookout. You're questioning other people's motives. You're, you know, doesn't uh, it, it affect the internal dynamics? Because these are self-consciously progressive, woke, liberal, justice-oriented uh, places. They talk all the time about our values. You know, they, they have this ethos of 
wanting to be on the right side of, of history. And uh, there could be, could there not a kind of self-destructive thing that goes on inside the organizations in which the, uh, if, if enough space is given to these identitarian developments, if the leadership doesn't put a stop to it right at the start by saying, no, 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 we're all here to make music. We're not here to, you know, et cetera. If it gets out of control, if, if the uh, uh, employees of color who are outraged by what they presume to be the anti-racist abetting behaviors of their white colleagues get the run of the place, the heads of editors may fall because the wrong kinds of pieces get printed. Again, uh, or the the offerings of the musical uh, oeuvre uh, will be, you know, less elegant and uh, edifying and than it might have been because obeisance has to be paid to certain, or the appointment to the chair will perhaps not be the most cutting edge scholar, but it'll be the one who meets the desiderata of that cabal within the committee that's damn sure they're not going to appoint another white male to this position. This kind of thing. And, you know, yeah, it's um, one of the scariest things I saw along these lines was um, in New York City, there's something called the Encores series, where for about 25 years now, they've been dusting off mostly old musicals and giving them five or six performances with a full orchestra and semi-mounting. And, you know, most of these have no business as Broadway productions, but you want to take a look at this thing from 1956 for a little while. And it's, you know, a delight. You know, it's a, there's a close circle of people who watch these. Well, 2020 got it. And so in this season, among other things, they took one older show and um, they, there's a very vocal, gay, black, of a certain age, actor and singer named Billy Porter. And it's funny, I, by chance, have sat in restaurants near him twice, just by chance. And he is very, very intelligent and frankly, very fond of hearing himself talk. And he's got certain ideas. I mean, you would, um, he's kind of like a real life version of the character Belize in Angels in America, although there's there's nothing about gender fluidity or anything about him. He's just he's a, a gay black. You know man. this by overhearing restaurant conversations. <laughs> I do. I could do an, an imitation of him. He's wonderful to listen to. But okay. turns out they let him get his hands on this musical, and he decides to make it into a vehicle of preaching about social justice. He was allowed to literally rewrite the whole thing. All of the music was rearranged to sound kind of R and B instead of like Broadway. And frankly, it wasn't The Life, which is what the musical was called from the 90s. It wasn't that show. And it was also a complete, pretentious, preachy fucking mess. Now, Billy Porter's a great guy, and he has some interesting things to say. He's a great performer. Some, some of you will have seen him as the lead in Kinky Boots. But what he did to this musical was a travesty. Anybody could have seen it, and yet nobody could have called him out on it. And what worries me, and you know, it was roundly criticized, but What worries me is that there's nothing stopping that sort of thing happening again and again. Nobody would have said, Billy, you know, why don't you take a part in it? Or we'll let you, you know, do a black musical from 2009 where there were already people in it who are a lot like you. But Billy, you can't have this. We're not going to do this because this doesn't sound like a quality project. Nobody would say that these days. And even though this, the life was a complete catastrophe. I'm sure that other things like that will come up because you're not supposed to act on the fact that it wasn't good. You're supposed to think, well, we should try again or 
something like that. But Glenn, I want to ask you something. People often say to me that the kinds of people who are pulling this sort of thing, you know, we see you white theater or the kind of black student protester that we both know, that they're doing it because they're insecure, that they're insecure about their performance. It's a way of detracting from the fact that they don't feel like they're the equal of the other students. Whenever anybody's asked me about that, I always say, I don't know. I always say that I understand where you're coming from, but I can't say that that's what it is. But, you know, watching this sort of thing gets so frustrating, like with this theater stuff, that I can't help wondering whether that's what it is. And I was thinking the other day, I have never known a Black undergraduate of those politics who, and it's important for everybody to realize that it's not all Black students who are like that. Those are just the people who wind up in the media. I have never known a Black undergraduate of those politics who was a tippy-top student put it that way. If the black student feels that way, they are not making A pluses. I have never known a black student who was making A pluses who engaged in that sort of thing. Now, they might pay some lip service. And in my experience, that black student who's making A pluses is not, you know, as they used to call me sometimes, whiteified. I've known some extremely black identified students like that who were making A pluses. And some of them were black American, not Caribbean or African. But if you were performing at the same level as all the white kids, you are not out on the steps yelling at some white administrator. I have never seen it. And it's not because they're too busy. It's because I think it's that they are sure of themselves. Have you ever known that type who is also not just smart, but a tippy top student? Just a question. I, I have a name in mind. I don't want to mention it because I don't want to embarrass him. Uh, <laughs> he was a he was a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, he, he studied with a top philosopher at, at uh, Cambridge in the UK when he went over there for his World Scholarship. Uh, he was a joint econ, Africana studies major at Brown. And he Economics, fell into pretending that Brown was a racist institution. In Africana. No, no, he was, no, no. I'm naming somebody who is right in the sweet spot of what you were describing, which is to mm -hmm. say an absolute tip-toppy student who was not he was not one of these stand on the steps. He was every bit as woke. I mean, in terms of his politics, every bit as progressive. But he, but he was not dismissive of the canon. He, he, he was not contemptuous of the, of the norms of what constituted excellence. You know, he, he wasn't uh, trying to remake the thing from scratch. He was trying to master uh, the techniques of economics and the philosophical concepts on behalf of his serious commitment to trying to make the world a better place. And he was sure of himself. He knew mm -hmm. that he was as good as anybody walking along because he was doing both a humanistic program in terms of philosophy and social study in, in Africana and a technocratic program in terms of analytical economics and, uh, and whatnot. And he distinguished in, he's distinguished in my mind uh, as a student of color who was also a a sharply progressive political thinker exactly by his excellence which i think did allow him to feel secure and not have him engaging in this dismissive activity where they want to rewrite everything from scratch you know you're telling me this is you know these are a bunch of dead white men i don't have to read these books kind of thing like that no i i think there's something to what you say um if you're secure in your um, ability to function at a high level within the specialized enterprise that you're engaged in, 
you will be more inclined if there are doubts about your ability or if there are questions to dispel them through performance than to dismiss them through a kind of subversive, you know, I, 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 let's redo the whole thing. I don't trust the powers that be, et, et cetera, attitude, which is what I think fuels this uh, uh, irreverence and uh, a, a lack of deference in the evaluation process, I, you know, I don't know what you think makes for a good show. I, I don't know why your judgment about this guy's revision of the a play from an earlier era was bad, but I'm sure he would reject the criteria that you used to make that assessment. <laughs> yeah, the people, the sorts of people who you can imagine thought that people who didn't like the show just didn't like that racism was being addressed or that they didn't like the idea of a black person telling the story their way. That's the idea. The notion that it, there really might have been a problem of quality with the thing as a dramatic product, which there was, is considered completely off the table. That could possibly be it. We just have to question what these white standards are. But I want to be clear that I'm saying that um, it's not that only black students have these insecurities. It's not that only black students are less than A+. At the same school, there are white students who are less than A+, plus, you know, maybe sure. B+, plus, and who are insecure. Very common, especially at a top school where the grand theme is all of us were valedictorians, and then you get here and you realize you're not the smartest person. That's not a race. Right. But the thing is, if you are a white kid in that position, there are other things available to you to do to have a sense of something to grab onto to assuage your insecurities. It could be any number of things. You could become a stoner, you know, all sorts of things. Something <laughs> available to a black kid is to pretend that it's a racist institution because then all questions as to whether you're going to be an excellent student are tabled because you're dealing with all of this racism and so you can't be bothered. So it's just, it's something that the culture makes available to a Brown student. But I'm beginning to think that that really might be part of what's going on. You think of Katanji Brown Jackson, one of my favorite aspects of her biography is that she engaged in some of that but put a break on it to the point that it would have interfered with schoolwork. And look how far she got. You know, she's the kind that I like in that way. But there's another kind of student who just ODs on it. And what we're supposed to think is because they are uniquely committed to the racism. But the thing is, at that school, there isn't enough racism to explain this degree of anger. In the theater, there isn't enough racism to explain that degree of anger. And so I just find myself thinking with these truly performative people, in this theatrical production I'm thinking about, are they insecure about their chops? And so they feel better about being where they are by pretending to be victims of discrimination. And if so, it just it's, it's so modern and it's such a shame how much acting, <laughs> this is as if I'm trying to make some grand theme, but how much acting we put up with in our culture in the name of that sort of thing. And, you know, with good, sensitive, smart white people walking around pretending to think that these things are worth chewing on. Or to tell you the truth, I think a lot of them really do, especially lately. They're thinking, well, it must really be that bad. But based on what you and I are in a position to see is performance in not just the occasional case, but frankly, when it comes to these things, most of it. And here we are. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I was concerned about my health. My wife was getting on my case, telling me that I should be taking supplements, that I should be doing something 
besides the sloppy eating that I was doing and the lack of exercise that I was getting to improve my health. I wanted better gut health, more energy. I wanted to optimize my immune system. I hated taking pills and vitamins from all those different bottles. I wanted a supplement that actually tastes great. Now that I've been on AG1, I love it. It doesn't taste like it's super healthy. It has a kind of mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to each morning. So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health. It helps your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All of the things. What I do is every morning before breakfast, I take my dose of AG1. Uh, it's become a habit. I've incorporated it into my daily routine. It really makes me feel better. I've noticed it abets my digestion. Uh, I feel like I have more energy. It's easy to pack in my bag. I take it with me when I travel. I use it without fail every day. It costs you less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health and it's cheaper than if you uh, were to buy all the supplements yourself. You're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance. Now, tons of people take some kind of multivitamin and it's important to choose one with high quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. AG1 is a small micro habit with big benefits. It's one thing you can do every single day to take care of yourself. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills or supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Glenn. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash Glenn to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. I'm still waiting for somebody to put their foot down and say enough, call bullshit on their uh, faux uh, protestations about race. I know the protestations are not faux. The protestations are real, but the claims about racism are are not particularly compelling. Trumped trumped up 95% of the time. And for somebody who's not Donald Trump or or Ron DeSantis or, or some kind of political actor coming in from the right, somebody who's... In you know a, a university president at a serious place, um, or a foundation president who's uh, you know overseeing the disbursement of billions of dollars, uh, or a corporate leader who's prepared to take the hit uh, in the short run uh, of uh, political uh, remonstration against uh, them standing in the gap. Say, say the corporate leader would say, "I'm in business to make money, not to play your little games." 
and I'm going to make my personal decisions based on that and let the chips fall where they may. Um, or the university leader to say, uh, it's about education, not about coddling when the students come here. They're Pro, their concerns that they're made to feel uncomfortable by ideas uh, shows that we're doing our job. Not, not that we've uh, created a problem that, uh, which, which requires some kind of emergency response or a cultural leader who says, I have been trusted with the crown jewels of Western civilization. And as best I can, I'm going to try to give voice to our generation's reading of this great inheritance. It's bigger than you in your identity fixation. I'm, I'm still waiting for that kind of thing because I think there's an a audience for it. On the political side, as I say, the success of certain kinds of politicians shows that there's an audience for it. And I'll bet you on the business side, uh, all these, you know, I'm, I'm gonna boycott because you don't have the right political point of view. I mean, there's also the counter boycott thing that can get going and as people can coalesce around, et cetera. So I, I think courage and leadership are critical factors in, in this arena. Yeah. And what really gets up my nose, as Mrs. Slocum used to say on Are You Being Served, is that I think a lot of this can sometimes be used not only as a cover for insecurity, but in the arts, it can be used as a cover, like in insecurity about your academic chops. In the arts, it can be used as a cover for not being very artistically sensitive, for not being somebody who feels what they ought to feel about art. I remember, and I have to speak about this yeah. delicately, and we're, we're, this is many decades ago, I knew somebody who was one of those people who, and this, this, there's a kind of person, can't hear music, doesn't, doesn't hear the the splendor of it, just like there's some people who can't get a painting. You know, I get a painting, but it would never make me cry. This is the kind of person who just doesn't hear music that way, isn't stimulated by narrative unless it's very basic, you know, would never enjoy a film as opposed to a movie, doesn't get theater, is impatient with artifice. That's the kind of person that there are some people like that and they go do other things. But it's this kind of person and the person was in a setting where most people were much more artistically sensitive and this person knew that it could be seen as a mark against them to be as numb to art as they were. And so what they did was they analyzed all art through a radical feminist lens. Very easy, because frankly, almost anything you see can be you know, put through those paces. And it was a great way to shut down conversation. It was a great way to seem intelligent. It was a great way to matter. But what it really was, was that this person just didn't feel art. And I worry about that with um, some of this race stuff too. I'm watching right now. There's a, and here I really am going to have to speak in code. Somebody can ask me what I was talking about in about a year, but there's a beautiful piece of black art that was created by white men in the mid 20th century. And there's an effort that's being made to get it out into the public sphere. And it's gorgeous. It's some of the most beautiful music ever written. The way that it would get out into the world is being held up by one person quote-unquote, a young staffer. Young staffer these days is often a euphemism for young Black person who works at the organization. Young staffer is uncomfortable with the property, and therefore this discomfort has delayed, and God, I hope, has not destroyed the chances of what would create a conduit for this piece of art. 
one black, in this case, woman, who was uncomfortable because the thing was written by old white guys. Now, if that's all you think of this, and this person has had occasion to sample the art, if you can't hear how splendid this work is, including racially authentic, then it just means you, you have bananas for ears. And yet we're going to let that person decide whether or not the world experiences this piece because anti-racism. Haven't you written about move, this piece? Haven't you I'm beginning to, this? We're not going to talk about it, but I'm, okay, beginning but. <laughs> to, I'm beginning to want to move to Mars because this okay. stuff is getting frightening. You know, of course I've written about it. This stuff is getting frightening to me. Okay, so you move from an academic setting where a student of color might not feel secure in their chops and they substitute the stance of a grieved, injured party in protest for a mastery over the whatever the canon at hand requires onto an arena of art where either the suppression of artistic uh, achievement on behalf of politics or the infusion of politics, which ruins and undermines the, the humanistic, the profundity of an, of an artistic work because it becomes preachy and didactic and, you know, predictable and flat. You know, it reminds me of Baldwin's uh, early essay, Everybody's Protest Novel, where he's complaining about the writing of Harriet Beecher Stowe. Um, uh, and uh, uh, Bigger Thomas's guy, uh, um, Native Son, Richard Wright. Richard Wright. Yeah, Baldwin is saying, you know, a protest novel falls short of what great literature should require. You know, you're taking some steps in the right direction with the creation of these characters, but to really achieve, you know, Dostoevsky and Heights, you got to put down the ducky. You got to put down the cudgel. You, you got to let go of the of the banner that you're waving and delve deeper. Universality is what we're looking for. We're looking for the touchstone of the human condition, not, not for your slogan. Mm -hmm. And yet here we are with all of this, where what you just said is rejected as well. No, that's just, you know, going with the standards of this, these white oppressors. And there's a lack of interest in any kind of standard or any kind of, uh, I guess the hard thing is, and I've said this before, and so I'm, I'm a broken record. If you're not going to go by the standards of, say, for example, <laughs> complexity of music or richness of harmony or even complexity of rhythm, et cetera, et cetera, if all of that is just no good, then it seems that what we're really talking about is this sense that we're going to instead substitute what values and the values seem to be a conception of blackness that is about us as monkeys spontaneous spontaneous communitarian simple democratic easy intuitive all about your local environment nothing too complicated because we're not supposed to be too curious no it's all easy it all seems to me that so about Soulful, so you know, it's basically in, in touch, yeah. <laughs> the best thing about a black person is the way black people dance. That's what all that is about. And that's not a suitable replacement for what there was before. We've got to come together. And I think we already had in many ways. I think that the white hegemon is not what it was 50 years ago. But what these people want seems to be something childlike and primitive and unreflective. And they want to run the show. 
But what happens then is like what happened to the life? Boy, I'm going to have a lot of people angry at me after this one. But then you get what happened to that musical. You know, and that wasn't as good as what usually happens at encores because it was based on preaching rather than art. It's not right. It's, this is just not the way it's supposed to be. Maybe we should shift the subject. John, I read your recent column uh, that you started off talking about Paul Lawrence Dunbar's use of the N-word in reference to yes. his servants and, Glenn, and all on that, that. On that subject, let's break the fourth wall a little. Somebody just left me some iced coffee that they've been wanting me to try. I'm just going to oh. get up and grab the cup. You do um, that. I'm right here. <laughs> okay. John with his kids. He's got to take a break, but he's coming back. Iced coffee. I wish I had some iced coffee. I do have oh. a little bit of water here. Oh, look at this. Okay. Hmm. So. So. Oh, oh yeah. Talk about Paul Lawrence Dunbar, his his greatness and his foibles. It's just one of those things. I was reading about Paul Lawrence Dunbar. He's the probably leading black poet, late 19th century. He didn't live much into the 20th. And he did good work. And I never read his life story, and one just came out, so I thought I'd learn. And I also, I always find that era straddling 1900 interesting in all sorts of ways. Yeah. Black ways and always. That's the beginning of modernity. Yeah, And so this is a detailed bio of him. And it just turns out that he uses the N-word a fair amount and not in that affectionate way that we're used to. It's something you have to get used to when you read these gaslight era literate black people. He refers to a black servant as the N-word. And his wife in letters refers to, you know, even <laughs> she doesn't like the way Booker T. Washington greeted them on the street. And she says, well, that blah, 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 uses uses the word in letter. Well, well, we can use the word, can't we, John? Or, I mean, as you choose, as you choose. You know, it's getting, people are beginning to be so performative about that, that I'm throwing them the bone because there are other things that I'm going to do. You're, you're, you're quoting Dunbar, and then somehow we lose the effect if you don't say he called the servant. So he, he writes a letter to his wife and he says, no, I was not intoxicated. I actually had all of my clothes with me. Only I didn't have the right collars with me, and I had to send a nigger out to get me the right kind because all of mine were stick-up collars. That's typical of him. He means a Black person who's not like him. And what I found myself thinking when I finished it was, I don't care. Like, I thought that it's unfortunate that that's the way people of his class felt then. But this has nothing to do with my evaluation of his work, and I don't want anybody to write an article where they say, we must consider is intra-black classism when we think about the work of Paul Lawrence Summer. No, we don't need to consider it. It's not, it just wasn't that important. He was much, much more than that little wrinkle. And yeah, especially because that was typical of well, white people of his class. Per perhaps a person could say, I thought this when I was reading your piece, that we need to consider it, but not for the purpose of taking his name off of the syllabus. Mm -mm. We, we need to consider it for the purpose, perhaps, of reading and understanding more fully uh, what he's after in his poetry. And I'm not a, by any means, I mean, I'm a, I'm a literate person. I you know, know who Paul Lawrence Dunbar is. He was a great poet at the turn of the 20th century. He died young and wrote some lyrical poems. Most of us poems. don't sit around curling up with him these days, right? Yeah. Uh, but, but the, so uh, here's some questions that I have. I'm sure the nigga that was taking his collars out or going to pick them up uh, was darker complected than he. 
Actually, Glenn, he was very dark, but I take your point. Was, Dunbar, I, was Dunbar less was educated, yeah. had come from a lower class straight up, probably spoke the English language with a completely different dialect. Exactly. Uh, represented a step from slavery. The year was 1895, after all. Mm -hmm. That's only 30 years. I mean, 30 years ago was 1992 for us. Exactly. So slavery was like 1992, you know, you, and you got somebody coming up out of uh, Georgia or South Carolina, something like that. They got a twang. They're walking in a certain way. They, they're dressed in a certain way. They have no connection with his world, no. the world that he lives in, the elegant, high-toned, even if it was a segregated, colored world, the servant has no connection with it. So when he writes about the, as uh, I could quote more explicitly if I knew more of Dunbar's poetry, the problem of the Negro, I mean, that's why I know about Dunbar's poetry, because he gave eloquent, eloquent voice to a certain angle of looking at American life from the quote unquote bottom up. <laughs> I should read it mindful of the fact that this is a guy who would send and tell casually his wife in a personal correspondence a nigga out to get his collars to that same guy. Mm -hmm. That's got to somehow affect how I understand his his uh, writing, doesn't it? Even if it doesn't affect whether or not I hold him in esteem as a great writer. That's a question. Well, how about this? Um, I can go with you on that. He was most famous in his day for writing in what they called dialect. And oh. one thing you learn from the book more than I had known before, I knew it a little, is that he was really sick of that. You know, he wanted to write in that high, you know, high and high and mighty Victorian style. And he did a lot. Mm -hmm. But the stuff that people really liked was all about my lady and the chicken and the foe instead of the four and all of that. That's, oh. And he didn't love that. You know, there were black writers oh. at the time who loved the dialect, who were more comfortable in that. He was not one of them. And so maybe that does inform a little something. So this person who is sending the nigger out for his collars is also somebody who makes, you know, a good living writing this dialect poetry. And we read it now and we think of how artful it is. But to him, that was the secondary thing. And he felt hemmed in, at least, by the fact that that is what people wanted, including that his is a time where to be a poet is also to do a lot of public recital. So he has to stand up and recite this. And with no microphone, you have to shout oh. to a room, my darky, mammy, you know, all of that stuff. He, didn't, he yeah. didn't like it. I guess that gives you a fuller picture of him to know that he also had that kind of classism. But then again, so did Booker T. Washington. So did Du Bois. You know, Du Bois, I'm not yeah, aware of that term, but you can tell he had those feelings from all sorts of things that he said. It was normal at the time. So I just don't know how much it's going to make me think about Dunbar because that was just normal of him at the time. But I thought I can imagine some people thinking we must consider this. And I'm not sure what I would consider. I take your point, but, you know. Now, you, you uh, invoked the Dunbar as an example in order to enter into a larger discussion about whether or not our retroactive judgments of uh, significant figures from the past should be colored and the extent to which they should be colored by our coming into a knowledge that they had unacceptable, you know, uh, views, views to which about certain issues that we could not credit, that they were homophobic, that they were racist, uh, that they were classist, uh, and, uh, or, or that they were, you know, womanizers who were, uh, you know, uh, 
patriarchal, you know, you know. And and you want to talk about that a little bit? I mean, about what the question is there? Why I wrote that piece, and I get the feeling it's going to be misunderstood, but what I was thinking was, this does not affect my feelings about Paul Lawrence Dunbar. It shouldn't affect anybody's. And then I thought, what about these more modern cases where somebody reveals some seamy aspect of themselves right here and now? I think I'm tired of this business of we must reckon with, we must consider, where the truth is, frankly, no one's perfect. The further back you go in time, the less perfect people are going to seem to be, especially on social issues. And to me, I sense a gestural quality in this idea that we have to think of it just like you have to put a definite article before each French noun, la plume, and you're supposed to think of this person. So Flannery O'Connor. Well, you know, big surprise, big surprise. Southern white woman, mid 20th century, was a racist in private. What a big surprise. So you can find it in her letters. She says certain things. She doesn't like James Baldwin. Big surprise. She was a racist. Now, there have been these articles coming out. What do we do with that? And the answer is nothing. We evaluate her work. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. Anybody almost of her time and place was a bigot. Must we get off on pretending that that has to affect how we feel about their art? As if really seamy things in people somehow keep them from also producing great art. Everybody understands that, understands it about Wagner. But somehow if you get to anybody who's a little bit less godly than that, then no, you're supposed to pretend otherwise. And I just thought, I don't care what Paul Lawrence Dunbar called anybody. I don't care whether Flannery O'Connor was a racist. I don't care if Thomas Jefferson thought black people were inferior. Let me me ask you a question. Excuse me, friend. Don't you think an Israeli Philharmonic Orchestra performing Wagner Mm -hmm. goes a long way towards sanitizing Wagner? Sanitizing? No. I mean, making acceptable. I mean, oh, well, I mean, if, if, if they do it, I think that is showing that these are people who understand that the music is splendid if the man wasn't. And my main thought was, even today, people today, I think we should hear that they think something or listen to them say something and just figure, well, as long as that's just one thing in their timeline, consider the whole person. And I think, for example, of Felicia Rashad, the actress, Bill Cosby's wife. who spoke on behalf of Cosby. He's done it twice. Felicia Rashad thinks that those women either were lying or that they shouldn't have come forward. And she still thinks it. She didn't make one mistake three or four years ago. She tweeted, finally, when Cosby was let out of prison on a technicality. Yeah, That's what she thinks. I don't think that that should be the sum of what we think about Felicia Rashad, although on it, she's clearly got some blinders on, possibly because of what that man did for her career, maybe because of something about her as an individual. She's wrong. But I still love her as an actress. And I think this is the thing, Glenn. Everybody agrees with that when it comes off into black women. I'm noticing it's easy with with a black woman. I think we should do it with everybody. That's my point. Black women get, you think, more of a pass when they might step a little bit out of line, as Joy Reid did and some of her homophobic comments. And uh, they get a they get to be rehabilitated more quickly than other people do. You think I think there's a case to be made for it. And I haven't done any numerical work on it, but it seems that people are a little more gentle with black women. And I understand why. But I think we need to use the same restraint with people of all kinds. Well, I I was going to offer a different kind of argument for the restraint, which was they're not necessarily wrong when viewed within their own context. 
So Flannery O'Connor, you say, no surprise, a Southern woman is a racist. Well, I don't know whether or not, if I was standing in 1955 or whatever, watching James Baldwin or 1960, Mm -hmm. now history, history in retrospect, Baldwin comes off looking pretty good, (laughs) you know, but at the time, you know, this little bug guy, little black guy running around, you know, thinks he's the greatest writer since, you know, uh, a person might have looked askance at that. A person might have said, who is this, uh, you know, angry, brilliant? Now, grant you, I'm, I'm sure she wouldn't have denied that there was brilliance in Baldwin. There's not a, there was a kind of virtuosity there. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it's it's possible to have some, to raise your eyebrows at Baldwin in the, in the, or roll your eyes at Baldwin and to say, I'm not moving. In retrospect, you'd be wrong. But at the time, I'm not sure, I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, that that was a crazy thing for somebody to do. And on the, on the Cosby thing. I want to hear uh, what this is. I did not want to see him stay in jail forever. Okay. I would not say, as you quote, uh, Felicia Rashad is having said, the women shouldn't have come forward or they're lying. I would not say that. I'm not saying that I take the women at their word. There are many of them. I doubt that they're lying. I mean, I'm not, I don't believe that they're lying. And of course they should have come forward. The man was a sexual predator, a, a serial criminal. And, and he needs to be punished. On the other hand, he's an old man. He's you know, his life has been ruined. He's been he's been called to account, and you can have mercy. You 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 can you can tweet finally when they release Bill Cosby from prison without being a moral reprobate. It seems to me on the argument that okay, bad guy. He went to prison. His reputation has been destroyed. Let him die a, a, a old man's death somewhere. You can you can do that. I don't regard that as making me a bad person. Uh oh, am I a bad person, John? I'm just Cosby thinking, should never be Cosby is Jeffrey Epstein, and he should never be let out of prison. No, I I hear you. I'm just thinking on Twitter. As soon as this drops, the usual suspects are going to be saying he's just you know being contrary. All right, all right. He just likes making people mad. I see what you mean. Yeah, I'll go you one on James Baldwin, and I think I I'm allowed because I've read almost all of him. I am a huge huge fan. Almost everything he ever did. Nevertheless. I don't think that he necessarily won that debate with, um, with, um, and I say that and then, and then lose a name, Bill Buckley, you know, it's a great performance. He was a great performer, but I think that the idea that he necessarily bested Buckley, who was quite brilliant is based partly on the fact that we want him to have, and we're in favor of him. And we like his performance as opposed to anything he actually said, I'll go with you only that far. On, on the Baldwin, you're saying because he's this bug-eyed little loud mouth, and maybe it's not no, about I'm his saying race. They, they, I don't. I'm not saying that. I'm saying they might have said it in the time. <laughs> it might have looked that way. That's that's all I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, he says it himself in that letter from a region of my mind where he talks about meeting Elijah Muhammad. Do you remember that when he talks about flying out to Chicago and sitting at the long table with yep. the women all over on one corner and all these guys with their bow ties on and their straight backs and Elijah Muhammad down at the end. He's a gay guy, the F word. He's like five, six or something like that. He's this little, you know, and all these guys, you know, the fruit of the Islam and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And all of the hyper kind of sexuality things that are going on and all of that. I mean, mm-hmm. you know. No, I get it. it. it yeah, okay. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but the, pe- the piece that I wrote, why I wrote it was I was thinking the forbearance that, say, a Joy Reid gets. You know, and she got yelled at and made fun of, but no one thinks about it anymore because there's a whole lot more to Joy Reid than those blog posts that she wrote. I'm thinking, why can't we do this with everybody? 
you know, I think that uh, that's what the model should be. Unless, of course, like Bill Cosby. I'm not thinking of Bill Cosby as somebody who just transgressed a little bit. If you're talking sure, about really no, egregious he's a serial, he's a serial behavior. criminal. But if we're talking about something somebody said, something somebody wrote, and that includes racially insensitive things, like Roseanne Barr, I think she should still be on her show. Yeah. I don't think that she should I, have I, had her whole career destroyed based on that one tweet or even a couple. It's just not enough. Let it pass is the way I feel. But no, if it's a white woman who does it, I get the feeling it's seen as different because race is different. But how different today? You know, it's just, I don't, I'm not on that bandwagon. So you would have taken Woodrow Wilson's name off of the buildings at Princeton as was uh, off of the school yeah. and whatnot. Because he was egregious even for a man of his time and even place, even as a white Southerner at the time. He was a rabid bigot. That rubs me the wrong way. Ordinary bigotry of his, of his time, whatever. Most people can't see well, beyond but, their time. But he was ratified. He was governor of New Jersey. He was president of the United States. He was president of Princeton University. I mean, th think of all of the different uh, uh, vettings that, that he had to uh, survive and be affirmed by. So what, he wasn't a, a lone actor. He, he, he was merely, not merely, not merely, I, I don't want to seem to minimize this. He was a man of his time and place, and he stood in for forces much bigger than himself, which ratified what he did. And uh, I, I don't know what's achieved here by uh, the uh, retroactive purification uh, that... Uh, revoking the uh, enshrinement of him as one of the figures of the founding of the institution accomplishes. He is one of the figures of the founding. The institution rests on precisely that foundation. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's like the statue thing where I would say, rather than take down the statue, I'm not talking about Confederates now, I'm talking about Thomas Jefferson or George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or whatever, rather than take down the statue, uh, contextualize it by, by uh, teaching people what's at stake here while affirming the historical fact that this guy really was one of the founding fathers or this guy really was the, one of the most significant figures in the history of American politics or the history of this institution, that's Princeton University, New Jersey, United States. I, yeah, so... We'll I think it's cheap grace. It's cheap grace to take the name off the building. I'm open to the argument. Um, in his case, you know, the man writes, you know, work articulately defending the view of Reconstruction right out of Gone with the Wind. You know, exactly what Du Bois devotes his early career to refuting. This is a man who watches the birth of a nation and calls it history written with lightning. Just yeah, I, I, yeah, okay. And yeah, and this is where I'm going to get cut down, but. So that's what one one thing that he's like. And then he holds all these offices. Okay. And I would say to, to people who haven't happened to have read a biography of him, okay, he held all those offices. And what? What was the great thing that came out of it? Like I imagine you could say that he was a beacon for the progressive movement. That's something. Yeah. I, doesn't the income tax amendment uh, get 
enacted during his uh, administration? That starts that starts during him, but I don't know if he is the face of it. And if it is, his being somebody who people of his time would call having a problem with the blacks stands out to me in our times. Like I'm saying, how much does race matter 10 minutes ago? But it matters that much. You know, it's just... I, I want to be clear. I, I, in no way am I expressing any sympathy for Woodrow Wilson's position on race, race issues. I recognize exactly. I mean, resegregating the federal civil service, and, you know, so on. League exactly. of Nations, he tried, but he failed. But you know, he didn't, he didn't have the, the personal front. charisma, you know. It's just... Mm, mm. But I, I could be convinced that he shouldn't have his name taken off the building. But I did. I was in favor of that. I don't want to walk by his name every day. I thought we might raise before we close on this. Uh, uh, we both learned just recently that Salman Rushdie, the uh, uh, author, was attacked viciously at Chautauqua, uh, the uh, summer uh, retreat and uh, arts and culture center uh, in Western New York, stabbed, uh, seriously injured, uh, hospitalized now on a ventilator, might lose his eye. Uh, liver punctured, a uh, very serious, life-threatening attack on a writer. Man ran up onto the stage with a knife and just began to slash at him. And uh, this is, uh, you know, there was the fatwa, the Iranian uh, ayatollah uh, issued after Satanic Verses uh, was published 1988, if I'm not mistaken. That's 34 years ago. And still, uh, uh, his uh, this shadow of death hangs over him and whatnot. And as a writer, a writer who's publicly exposed and uh, who touches on controversy from time to time, I wonder what your thoughts are. You know what my thoughts are about that? Um, and there are always issues of degree. But over the past 24 hours, I've been thinking about just passionate unreason and what's there seems to be an epidemic of it and so anything that would be seen as justifying that that man being slashed like that for some things that he wrote because it's about a religion i don't see the rationality in it and you know here it is he's you know relaxing and going out in public and 34 years later you know you know comes close to losing his life and God, I hope he doesn't lose it. Based on you know this, you know, having gone against certain strictures, and then I think of the 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 white Republican right right now, and the people who are insisting that the election was stolen and that the country is being taken over, and refuse to believe that Trump actually lost legitimately, and reason can't penetrate. And then it just happens that at the same time, I heard about this little theatrical production. Where And of course, these people are not creating harm, anything along the lines of the first two things that I mentioned, but still, people who refuse to listen to reason because of a social issue, an issue of identity, an issue of what we really are and what we really want to be, closed off to reason, happily harming other people emotionally, shutting down what should be a communal effort, numb to reason. You're seeing it in so many places, and I repeat, people, in case this gets clipped, I'm not saying that Somebody screaming during the production of some musical at somebody else is the equivalent of what happened to Salman Rushdie. I'm not saying that. But they all seem to be the same type of thing. Passionate, 
identitarian unreason. And I'm not sure what can be done about it. It really makes me worry about the world. It makes me worry about going about in it in many ways. Okay, you're not equating these things. That was going to be what I was going to say. Don't equate these things. So I'm glad you're not equating them. Bill Maher made a comment on his show uh, uh, about this, which centered on Islam. Uh, he was trying to make the point that um, there was something especially problematic, especially troubling. I grant you that uh, I should finish the sentence about the irrationality in this case. You you say there are irrationalities afoot people who are not amenable to recent discussion of issues who are simply going to believe regardless to all evidence to the contrary notwithstanding they're going to believe what they believe and the suggestion from mar and i'm wondering if i agree with it I'm, i don't know if i do or i don't but i'm prepared to consider it is that when you think about islamic fundamentalism there are other fundamentalisms it's not the only one but the one i'm talking about is the one that left Salman Rushdie bleeding practically to death on that stage in Chautauqua, New York. Uh, he did something specific. He wrote a book in which he depicted the Prophet Muhammad in a particular way. That's an act of intellectual expression. It's, it's an act of literature production. He had a thought. A religion uh, to which over a billion people worldwide are, are devoted, at least an offshoot of it, uh, inspired uh, a global vendetta to take his life because of words, because of words that he spoke or wrote. Uh, that's something very specific. And we do ourselves a disservice. It can be argued, I think, Marm meant to suggest, and I'm affirming that suggestion here, if we don't, if we lose track of that, if we lose track of exactly what we're talking about, we're talking about Islamic fundamentalism at a global scale, and nobody, if I were to continue in this vein, uh, is safe if this kind of thing can go down. If it can go down in Chautauqua, New York, man, I've been on that stage. I know that amphitheater. See, 4,000 people, it's open air, Chautauqua, it's a summer camp for intellectuals who come out there for, they rent houses for some weeks and their lakes and they can hike and they can go to opera and they can hear lectures from intellectuals and et cetera. And they have nice meals and they have probably have a square dance for all I know, for all I know. <laughs> but it's a cute little place up there in, in, in the woods, you know, near, uh, near Lake Erie. And and uh, somebody runs up on the stage and attacks him. Now that that is deeply, deeply, deeply unsettling, um, and uh, we ought to call it what it is, uh, says Mar. And I don't know what you think about that. Is mentioning the fact that this is Islamic fundamentalism expressing itself uh, something that should be forbidden on behalf of a you know anti. You know, it's the kind of thing that Trump would say, so we shouldn't say it. Well, it's not, it's not all Islam, it's a particular kind of it, yeah. but it is um, genuinely frightening. I just think of, you know, this 
24-year-old man who you know, devoted himself you know, to actually getting to Chautauqua and actually, you know, trying to kill that man. And that's what he devoted himself to. His life was devoted to this. He knew that he possibly could lose his life trying to do it. He didn't know what security would or would not be like there. And in general, he knew that you know, he would almost certainly spend the rest of his life in prison. But he was more interested in doing that than anything else. And yet probably we're going to find out that he was perfectly sane. That's a way of being human. And all these things that we're talking about are ways of being a perfectly rational human being. And, you know, it, it just, it can make you so sad. I remember when cell phones came in, I learned that people want to talk more than I ever knew that they did. Before there was a such thing as a phone in your pocket, you couldn't talk on the phone all day. I thought that what it was, was that you talked on the phone when it hung on the wall. And then when you were walking around, when you were on the train, when you were out and about, you were in your own head. That's what, you know, an academic person like me would think. Yeah. It would never have occurred to me that if people could have phones in their pocket, probably about every second person would be on the phone all day, that most yeah. people would rather be sharing than alone. I only really learned that around the year 2000. Then you learn something. Now, that's just a minor thing. But then you learn something like this, that this is a way of being a rational person, it, it, dealing with the, the complexities of modernity, because that's what this is, this, that yeah. kind of Islam. Even the sorts of people who are pretending that theater is racist, even you know, the people who are pretending that, you know, that an election was stolen and that the country is you know, falling apart underneath them and that they're no longer in control. All of these things are, are modernity problems. But this is within our code. And none of those things are going to change. That's the scary thing. They're not going to change. So, yeah, I'm very sad this week. And what happened to Rusty is the most frightening thing I've heard in God knows how long. But I was thinking it is a kind of thing that you see in less grisly but still very disturbing aspects elsewhere these days. There's a lot of it afoot. Sorry to interrupt. He, he, he must have thought he was out of the woods. You know, I saw him in a Cambridge, Massachusetts restaurant maybe three years ago. Uh, Lawan and I were sitting there with our Indian friends, uh, Ashu Varshni and Vipip Pinkley. And, and we looked over at the table, two tables away from us, and there was Salman Rushdie. And Ashu says, that's, that's Salman, that's Rushdie, that's Rushdie. And he went to get up and go and greet him. And we persuaded him that that was not what we should do. Let the man go out and have dinner. Don't do that, Ashu. Yeah. But it it was indeed Salman Rushdie sitting right there in a, you know, restaurant on, uh, you know, Brattle Street in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I saw him at a party once. Yeah. yeah. It was a a New Yorker party, having the time of his life, no security. And you you think when you see him then, well, you know, that 80s stuff is over. And then this happens. Looks like it's never over. And notice that the person who did it was not remotely born when the fatwa was leveled. Yeah, he's 24 years old. (laughs) It's a child, you know? Uh. Or 20 years, 10, 15 years after the thing. Okay, John, uh, good talking to you. uh, And we'll sign off now. And uh, thanks. Much fun, Glenn. (laughs) Yeah.